I imagine the discovery of indigo by humans, probably tens of thousands of years ago, is one of pure amazement. Plucked from the plant and squished, the indigen so long concealed in the leaves makes contact with the air and oxidizes, turning blue. The squished leaves wash off, but the blue remains, a reminder of how our perception of things, those green leaves on that plant, can be very different from reality. In some way, this gets to the heart of what indigo is for me. Uh, we experience indigo's blue at face value, yet it's so much more than just a color. Cultures throughout the world have, attri have attributed the process of transferring the dye from plants to cloth to the supernatural. Indigo has sparked independence movements, and its mere uh, presence in certain types of cloth, like the Fula wedding cloth from West Africa, transforms the mundane, plain woven cloth to a sacred symbol of the effort expended in dyeing and weaving as a metaphor for marriage. While these things are in no way what I'm really getting at in my own work, they do lend credence to my belief that there's much more to this, to this dye than just blue. So along those lines, uh, some of you may be familiar with the work of Fritz Haig. Uh, his work was included in the 2008 Whitney Biennial. Uh, Haig is trained as an architect, and his work includes performance, education, and radical gardening, like his ongoing project Edible Estates, pictured here. Uh, where Haig works with various community groups and homeowners to transform grassy lawns into food-producing garden plots in what he describes as an attack on the American front lawn and everything that it has come to represent. Haig's artistic endeavors hinge on the belief that the acts of living and making are inseparably connected. Fritz Haig's picture here from a New York Times article with a teapot made by Richard, Richard Bresnahan. Bresnahan runs the St. John Ceramic Program in Minnesota, a program well known for its use of local materials, both for clay body and for glazes, and local wood as well for kiln fuel. In the same article, Haig suggests uh, state, sorry, in the same article, Haig states that as he was, he's in the process of getting rid of his possessions to lighten his impact on the world, um, that he wants to, oops, he wants to hold on to this teapot. He says that it's one of the only things that he's going to keep. He bought the pot, it's a traditional Japanese double board shape, several years ago on a return visit with his father to the campus of St. John's, where his father went to school and where Haig grew up. Haig is quoted as saying, The first time I visited Brezhnehan's studio, I was blown away. This teapot is part of the art world that's really been marginalized. Handcrafts and the stories of how things are made. I don't think many artists think about where their materials come from. With this, Haig presents us with a number of ideas that are central to my own work as an artist. Really, the ideas that drew me to textiles as a medium in the first place while living in Japan. That where materials come from does matter, and that the materials and processes through which objects are made carry meaning in and of themselves. As time progresses and certain materials and processes become outmoded and obsolete, their meanings shift and are seen in a whole new light. To illustrate the latter idea, that our perceptions of certain actions change with changing circumstances, Consider another time in American history when people ripped up their lawns and transformed them into gardens as a means of producing their own food. Certainly, Haig's Edible Estates project is on the surface no different from what the U.S. government asked of citizens during World War II with the planting of Victory Garden. But in the context of 20, 21st century suburban sprawl, with the natural resource drain of lawns and our own societal disconnect from our food sources, all of a sudden the act of transforming a suburban lawn into a source of food independence becomes a stance against all that the Levittown Lawn symbolizes in post-World War II America. So 
So to illustrate this first idea, the materials and processes through which objects are made carry meaning in and of themselves, uh, I'd like to take a quick look at this historical Japanese textile, a textile that is much more profound to me than any object or installation that I've ever made. Um, in a way, it's sort of a, a personal ideal or touchstone of sorts. Um, first though, before I talk too much about this, I'd like to raise the basic question of how we see an object, or maybe better stated is what we see in an object. So here are some different categories for what we might be seeing when we look at this textile. One of the first things that we see, because it's kind of impossible to overlook, is certainly the imagery. There's a crane up there on top, and there's a parent and child tortoise, uh, a pine tree, bamboo, plum branches, and blossoms. And I'll come back to all this imagery in a minute, because out of context, they're sort of meaningless. Next, we might choose to see and analyze some of the formal elements, uh, rough dimensions and sizes. It's about two feet by four feet. Uh, the color, there's two shades of blue, as well as white and red. The line weight and quality, noting how the lines in the blue section are clean and crisp, while the lines in the red area are segmented and blur up there at the edges. And of course, materials. This is cotton dyed with indigo and matter. And finally, the process that was used in making it. This is freehand paste resist and shibori on cloth that was hand spun and woven. We might consider the function or see the function of this textile next. Uh, this is uh, ubuyu yuage, it's a bath towel. And with a little research, we're able to see the symbolism that I skipped over in the imagery, uh, which is common to many Japanese folk textiles. The tortoise and crane are uh, auspicious animals known for the, their longevity. The crane said to live a thousand years, the tortoise 10,000. The pine, bamboo, and plum blossoms, shochikubai, are another group of auspicious motifs. Pine trees are green all year round. Bamboo is quick growing and extremely strong, but at the same time, it's very flexible. And plums are the first tree to blossom in the spring, all symbols of strength and fortitude. This culturally based imagery leads to the next category of seeing, more of a material culture perspective that sees an object for what it can tell us about the culture and people who made it. Where and when is it from? Who made it and why? What was the object's purpose and how was it used? In the case of this textile, it was made in Izumo in Shimane, Japan, for the birth of a grandchild. The maternal grandmother-to-be would spin and weave plain white cotton that would be taken to her local dyers and transformed into a set of textiles to be presented to the new parents as soon as the baby was born. This gift set of indigo textiles included, among other things, hand-spun and woven diapers, with, uh, a carrying cloth, uh, there's some examples of this in the exhibit, uh, as well as some version of this ubuyu-yu-age, a very symbolically loaded yet functional towel intended to celebrate the birth by raising the occasion of the baby's first bath after birth into a ceremonious event. Already, we can see that this is no ordinary bath towel. I've already touched on the process of making the cloth, the care and attention that went into the maternal grandmother's spinning and weaving of the material. This is not some off-the-rack material, but one that could be said to contain the grandmother's hopes and aspirations for her grandchild. Possibly this is just a romantic projection of me from the 21st century, but it's really impossible for me to imagine someone planting the cotton seeds, tending the plants in the fields, harvesting, ginning, bowing, spinning, and weaving the cloth in anticipation of the birth of a grandchild and not weaving her hopes and aspirations for this new life into the material. 
I like to think of this aspect of process as intention. Much like Haig's edible estates are different in intention from World War II victory gardens, even if similar in process and outcome. There's one more category that's really central to the discussion of this type of textile, and is always brought up in Japanese discussions of similar works, and that is material substance. By this, I don't mean to simply repeat the materials category above and say that it's indigo dyed cotton, as a museum label might inform us. Instead, in Japan, people are quick and eager to point out that indigo was used for such textiles for its medicinal properties, its antibacterial, as well as its strengthening properties. Uh, indigo coats the fibers and thus protects and strengthens them. These properties, and, and that's actually one of the reasons why indigo is used in denim for, for dyeing jeans and other work clothes, because it strengthens the fiber. These properties were believed to be transferred to the baby when the towel was rubbed against its skin. In the same way, the upper right-hand corner that is dyed with Japanese matter and was intended solely for wiping the baby's face is not merely red for aesthetic reasons. The Japanese matter root used to dye this color was believed to have medicinal properties that protected against common eye ailments. In some examples of these towels, the corner for wiping the face is dyed a yellow color with turmeric root, historically used as a medicine to strengthen stomach function. Hence, if your baby were to grab hold of the corner and suck on it, no harm and possibly some good would be done. So, I've given you a little bit of a background on my own interest uh, in indigo and some of the things that I find uh, interesting about it. And I'm going to come back to those uh, in a minute. But first, I, it's really important that I sort of somewhat quickly go through the process of growing uh, and, and processing indigo. Um, some of the video in the exhibit has a little bit of information about this, but uh, it's with the narrative, it's, it's probably a lot more clear. So, um, one of the things about indigo dyeing is that, that there's no one, or indigo growing, is that there's no one selling seeds. Like, I can't call up Burpee and say, please send me you know, five pounds of seeds for this year. Uh, so, and it is really this ongoing cycle. So, I'm just going to jump in in the middle here, which is uh, it, actually right about now, maybe in two to three weeks, uh, the indigo will be in full bloom and it will be uh, pollinated. So, these are fields there in bloom. And uh, the, the seeds are left to ripen and dry in the field. And then once they've died, uh, once the plants have died back in the fall, the seed heads are gathered up and they're spread out to dry and the seeds are winnowed. Um, so that in the spring, those seeds can be planted in a seedling bed, like you see here. This is just dirt that's been tilled up and uh, has sand on top. So you spread out the seeds and then you cover it with sand. And those seedlings uh, are tended until they're about uh, six to eight inches tall, at which point they're, they're ripped up out of the ground and transplanted into the field in groups of five or six seedlings uh, spaced about 18 inches or so apart in rows that are uh, about, about 80 centimeters. <laughs> you want to do the math, uh, a little under a yard. Um, I also have to say that like, I don't make my wife do all the work, but uh, someone had to take a picture. So. There's, no, there's no one making machines to do this. In Japan today, there's about uh, maybe 80-some families who still uh, grow indigo, and most of them grow on contract for, uh, there's five or so people who still actually process the grown plants to make the dye. So there's, you know, like Kubota, 
John Deere or whatever, they're not making uh, harvesters for indigo. There's no money in it. So all this work is, is done by hand. Uh, the, the indigo, the rows are cultivated, weeds are kept down, the plants are fertilized, watered, until they are ready to be harvested. Um, at that point, they're about waist high, and the plants are cut. Cut at the base, as you can see here, they'll grow up again for a second harvesting. And they're spread out in the sun to dry. And what you see on the uh, right-hand side there is uh, plants where the leaves have uh, oxidized and turned blue in the drying process there. They've been out drying, this is their second day. And the ones on the left and up top where they're still green have just been spread out to dry. So these are some of the dried leaves. And one of the things that you can see here is that the leaves contain the indigo, but not the stems. And there's a number of examples of, of leaf dried plants down in the exhibit that you can uh, see that in as well. So the plants are, um, you want just the leaves to make the dye. So the plants are, the dried plants are gathered up, they're put in a big pile and they're stopped. Um, and what that does is it powders the leaves. In Japanese, this process is called aikonashi. Uh, literally indigo powdering. Uh, the stems are not dried until they're brittle, so they're very easy to pull out, first with a pitchfork and then by hand, and then you're left with just the dried leaves. Those, that process of sort of harvesting, drying, uh, continues throughout the summer months uh, until you've gotten all of the indigo harvested. Like I said earlier, you cut the plants at the base once and they grow up again so you can take a second harvest. And then all those dried leaves are composted or couched um, which is done in a, a special room uh, called the Neidoko, which is really just a building with a very special floor. It's dug down about six feet and it, uh, it's backfilled with large rocks and smaller rocks and gravel and eventually sand, uh, rice husks, and then a layer of clay. And uh, a layer of clay forms the upper surface of this. And the purpose of that floor is to be absorbent and it absorbs off any excess uh, water put on uh, the pile during the composting process. So you take all those leaves that you've uh, gathered and harvested and dried over the summer and spread them out on this floor into a big pile. And into that you mix water. And this is left to compost. And what happens is if all goes well, in a few days it starts to grow mold on it. Um, and to keep the pile warm, it's covered. This is with a rice straw mat. And once a week, it's all uncovered and turned. You can see it's steaming there. It gets up to about 170 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. It's really steaming. This is also done in the winter, so it's it, you know you don't do it in a in a insulated building or anything. So when the warm, moist air of the pile comes into contact with the cold winter air, it really steams. It also gives off a lot of ammonia. So this is again the pile being turned. Once a week it's uncovered, the whole pile is turned over, more water is added, and then there I am adding water. Much younger. Uh, sweeping the floor. And then the pile's covered up and let to sit for another week. So this is a somewhat uh, deceptive image because this is the this is the pile at the beginning. And what you can see down here in that in the bottom left-hand corner is more bags of indigo that actually, I, you, there's so much dried leaf, you can't fit it all in the pile at once. And so 
uh, you start out with the pile, and little by little you add that in as the, as the pile shrinks down. What you're left with after 100 days of composting is this, plus all the other stuff that hasn't been mixed in yet, and it goes down to this very small amount. And what's happening is you can take these, the fresh leaves of the plant, and dye with them, but you'll never get a very, very dark color because of the, con the amount of concentration the concentration of the dye in the leaves. So what this composting process does is it burns off the excess plant material and concentrates the dye in the leaves. So this then allows you to dye really, really dark colors. Uh, once it's done composting, that indigo is bagged and weighed. Uh, this is showing us, um, it's using a traditional Japanese scale and a, a weight measurement called a con. This is uh, 7.5 con plus the weight of the bag there. Um, and that is a half bale of indigo. Here he's on. That's all the indigo from one year. They're all lined up. And at this point now, you sort of start in uh, late March. You plant your seeds. And you've kind of gone through the spring and the summer and the fall and the winter. And by the time you're done composting, usually it's February sometime. And then you're going to be heading into March and you're going to be starting to plant again. So as I said, sort of this sort of ongoing cyclical uh, process. Um, but once you've got the composted indigo, you're able to start the dyeing process. And for indigo, there's three basic things uh, that you need, no matter where, whether the indigo is, is synthetic indigo, uh, chemical, uh, uh, synthesized from petroleum, which is what all genes are dyed with today, or whether it's a natural indigo, you still need these same basic elements. The first one is the indigo itself, which we saw coming from the plants in this case. Uh, the second one is an alkali. So indigo is not soluble in water. It has to, uh, in order to make a dye with it, you have to have an alkali. And in my case, I use wood ash. So this is wood being burnt, and then the ash is sifted. Um, water is heated, and that, uh, that hot water is mixed with the ash that's stirred around, and it's left to sit, and then that liquid is strained off. This is wood ash lye, like people used to make soap with. And it's very strong pH, about uh, 13 to 14. And that, that process of heating water and mixing it with ash, you use the same ash, but you mix it uh, five or six times. So you heat up water, pour it in, stir it up, let it settle, strain it off, and that's the first batch. And then you add more hot water, stir it up, let it settle, let it settle, strain off, and that's your second batch. You repeat that in, uh, five or six times. And then once you've got all that together, uh, you take that wood ash lot and you add limestone to it, powdered limestone, which is another alkali, and you put this in a big vat container. To that you add your composted indigo, so now we have our indigo and our alkali. And the last thing that we need is reduction. So if everyone remembers back to like uh, high school chemistry, reduction, oxidation. Uh, <coughs> oxidation is the addition of an oxygen molecule Reduction is the removal of it. So in order to get the indigo to dye in its natural state, it's oxidized and it's blue. But in order to adhere to the fiber, it has to be reduced, chemically reduced. You have to remove the oxygen molecule. And the way that's done in the process that I use is through, is through fermentation. So I mix all that together, and in, that, in, that com in the composted indigo leaves, there's not just the blue uh, from, from the dye but there's all kinds of other bacteria. And they come to life under the right conditions, and they, the, the most important ones are anaerobic bacteria that 
eat the oxygen out of the vat and then and therefore like chemically reduce the indigo and making dye impossible. And you know that the fermentation is started when you start to get these wispy uh, metallic purple um, blotches forming on the surface of the vat. So at this point your vat's half full. You've been at it about maybe a week to ten days so far trying to get started dying. Uh, you're gonna take more of the wood ash lye and fill up the vat little by little um, until the vat is totally full up to the top. Usually to just start a vat takes about two weeks. Um, and then the dyeing process itself is actually really simple because all the work has been done uh, up to this point. So you take something, like in this case, just a piece of white cloth, it's immersed in the vat and moved around, it's pulled out, and the inside the vat, the reduced indigo has adhered to the fiber. When you pull it out, it changes from yellow, a sort of yellowish green to blue in a matter of seconds, sort of. Uh, I, I keep trying to get a good um, image of it. It's kind of challenging because it happens so quickly, uh, but it does it does change colors. Really fun. It's sort of like if you've ever developed photographs and you put your you burn your image and then you put your paper in the developer and it just appears. Uh, there's a very very similar feeling uh, working with it. So uh, one of the things about this type of vat is that it's living. So every day it has to be stirred and taken, taken care of. So at the end of the day when all the dyeing's done, that's stirred and then it's left to uh, it's left until the next day and is ready for dyeing. So um, some of the ideas uh, that I outlined today about materials and process uh, have been on my mind a, a long time. Um, but for nearly a decade, my work was really concerned more with formal elements of symmetry, balance, pattern, um, using simple geometric shapes, often sort of for their suggestive power, without the distraction of literal imagery, I've worked to create a resonance between the dyed and undyed portions of the cloth. I've also long worked with properties unique to indigo, gradation to reflect the way its color is built up through successive immersions in the vat, or pouring the dye through folded layers of cloth to create randomly shaped blotches. And I'm still working with the pouring of dye and I'm pretty excited by the possibilities, but I've also at the same time been working to give indigo as both a material and process a greater presence in my work. I've always experienced the artwork I exhibit as not merely the end point of the arduous process of indigo farming and dyeing, but it's also uh, these are objects that are built of the energy that I expend in making the dye. Each work is also a vessel that carries in its DNA the accumulated experience of all those throughout history whose work and insights form the tradition that I work with them. Indigo is both a material and a process is extremely rich in cultural meaning, history, societal implications, and it's really invaluable for what it tells us about ourselves in the 21st century. In an era of mechanized mass production, the choice to plant, transplant, weed, harvest, winnow, dry, and compost the indigo by hand is no longer one of necessity. My decision to work this way is a conscious act of recognition that all the energy extended in the farming and processing of the indigo plants 
is just as much a part of the final dye stuff as the indigo molecules themselves. Through, the straightforward, through a straightforward presentation of dye cloth and other objects, I hope to direct the viewer to look at this color for all that it is, its materiality, its cultural meanings, histories, societal implications. Through the formal inclusion of dried indigo plants in my installations, I hope to draw attention to the source of that color and the process that carries it from seed to cloth. Finally, through the overall layout of the space, I hope to create an enveloping experience of indigo's process, color, and history so that my viewer begins to sense that there's a lot more to this color than just blue. The opportunity that I've had here at Wright State to use the entire gallery space for my installation has really helped me better pursue some of these ideas. And while I hesitate to talk about the, the installation here in such literal terms, I'd like to quickly share some, some thoughts and, and images that explain a bit of my thinking about this installation. Uh, what you're seeing here on the bottom, for those of you who had a chance to walk through the exhibit, are the felted stones. And what you're seeing above is a sample of what's called a teita. And this is uh, historically in Japan um, how the indigo content of the composted, the composted leaves was tested for sale and how it was rated. Um, so you, you see the, this is actually kind of a nice example because you see sort of the blotches on the left are much darker than the ones on the right. So the ones on the left would be a much more concentrated dye and would be much more valuable. Um, and you can, these, these, there's, you see books, of, books like these in museums everywhere, and there are always sort of these blotches aligned in a grid. Um, and I, I did not think about this at the time that I was working with the stones and felting them and dyeing them, but I realized that that was something that really informed how I was presenting them. Um, I don't, again, none of this I take literally. Uh, one of the things, if you watch the video downstairs, um, you'll see the, the yarn that's used in the central installation there being dyed. And it's sort of set into the vat to a certain point and then pulled out. And it's really interesting. One thing, you, you sort of never get to see inside the vat as you're working. You always see the, the bit that's left. If you're leaving anything out of the vat, that's what you see. Um, and that got me thinking about creating a space in which sort of the viewer was in the vat, so to speak, or, or suspended in that space. So what I've done with this piece is dye uh, about 2,000 pieces of wool, and they're uh, around the perimeter of the gallery space, to sort of create a water line of sorts that would be the point below which the, the wool was in the vat and above which it was left out. And um, one of the things that's also very, very important to me is this idea of a flow between the past and the present. Um, the present certainly exists because of the past, uh, yet the present also reinforms and reframes how we see the past, challenging us to see it anew in our own way. And uh, I, I created this work uh, with, with that in mind, where on the bottom there's, there's a large pile of dried indigo leaves, sort of the, the basis of this whole process that people have been, the, the same plants that people have been using for thousands of years. And then um, moving up into the upper space, uh, th this piece moves both upwards and downwards, sort of the upstairs where there's uh, the historical textiles, uh, the, 
is this area, the sort of the history of, of the tradition that I, I was trained in. Um, and, and yet I'm not, a lot of those works are, are 100, uh, some possibly even 200 years old. I'm not working then, I'm working now. And so there is this play between the, the past and the present. And it's really uh, one of the things that was um, on my mind as I made this. How that, how uh, we can see the, seeing the old through the new. But in many ways, I, I keep coming back to this image. A dear friend and fantastic artist and indigo dyer named Hiroyuki Shindo once told me that his only advice for me as an artist was to return to the origin. Only then could I create something truly powerful and something original. I think after 14 years of working with Indigo, it, so in this image, I've, I've found that origin for me. And uh, in great part, thanks to the exhibition opportunity here at Wright State, um, I have a, have a new understanding of what I'm doing and stand here now with, uh, I'm very excited about the unknowns to be discovered ahead. So thank you, and if you have uh, any questions, I'd be more than happy to answer them.